point, my musical journey totally changed. Can you just uh, explain to everybody what Tony Humphreys would have been like walking into that cream thing? Like, uh, well, it was a tiny room at that point. It was only probably about, I don't know, 300 people. And it was just really, really quality house. Um, really groovy bass lines, put together immaculately well. I mean, I'd, I mean, I'd obviously heard nothing quite like it at that point. Um, and um, I just got, I totally went with it. And I think from that point, I sort of, we got back, we drove back to North Wales, which was about an hour's trip from Liverpool. And I was like, right, that's it. <laughs> I don't want to, uh, I'm not really interested in the sort of brass band orchestral route. I want to try and do something musically like this. Um, and then uh, I was just, I'd already committed to go into a, to do a degree, which was a music degree. So I did that. And then um, I was edging my bets because I was thinking I wanted to become a professional trombonist, but all the orchestras were full. And um, so I did a combined degree with music and law. So then I ended up in Nottingham, which is where I met Chris. He was doing a, a creative course. I was doing my law finals. And um, we met through a mutual friend. So you guess you look back on these moments, don't you now? When you talk about it, you think, oh God, that was really, that's quite a pivotal meeting that. I mean, I basically bumped into her walking down the street and I knew her from a, another town. Well, I had no idea you lived here. No, I didn't have any idea you lived here. Oh, do you want to come around with mine tonight? Yeah, great. I had no friends in Nottingham at that point. And I went round to her house and Chris was there. And um, we got chatting and um, we, I mean, hit it off immediately, started hanging out. Chris was already making some music. I'd already flirted with making music. I think I'd made one pretty dreadful record. Um, and Chris was making stuff for his course. So we sort of combined our gear and started um, making tunes and um, going to car boot sales, pilfering disco, sort of like finding disco really, because at that point the UK house scene had um, really popped off. So right. like labels like Euphonic and Paper, uh, all taking an influence from that. But at that point, I didn't really know much about disco um, apart from that. And I think that was the start of our journey into really finding out about the culture and um, about the birth of the music. And um, yeah, well, what we, yeah, and that was, that was basically the start of Crazy Penis, I think. Yeah, it's always yeah. funny to hear that happen. Everyone meets up in your towns, like where you live again. You go to way to Union and somehow, not the first time hearing that kind of story, where we came back and we met again and we now created this band or this production team. All right, Mr. Todd, you're in the hot seat, brother. Tell yeah. me. Okay, so I'm just trying to get the light better in here, but it's sort of, we're just gonna have to make do with this. Um, yeah. I, so, I, yeah, I think the, one of the earliest musical influences for me as a kid was like, my dad is the musical one in, out of my mum and dad. And um, 
he always gently kind of put things under my nose a little bit, you know, like um, tried to get me interested in guitar and um, I wasn't really too keen on the guitar at an early age, but um, he had a keyboard um, and um, it was one of those electronic keyboards with drums on it and stuff. And I used to love messing around with that from sort of quite an early age. And that really sort of sparked a bit of an interest really. Um, a bit later on, um, I got a bit more interested in the guitar. Um, I was quite into sort of rock and blues and stuff. And, um, I asked my dad to teach me. So he kind of showed me a few basic chords. Uh, my dad's very, um, he's a really good folk kind of finger style picking acoustic guitar, um, guy. Um, so I wasn't really too interested at that age. I wasn't really too interested in following that, that, that path. I wanted to kind of, um, I think at the time I was quite into sort of a lot of stuff, like quite sort of um, soft, rocky, Bon Jovi type stuff. And I, I, I sort of in, in, envisaged myself as some kind of guitar hero, uh, quite an impressionable age of 13. So I was kind of on that path, but um, really into my blues as well. I think, um, I think I found Prince at that age, which was quite useful. Um, but yeah, I, I was always in at school. Um, there was a really good a, a music room, um, which I used to spend all my time in. And they also had a, um, a sort of keyboard room. And it was quite the early early stages of just be, just as um, MIDI um, was starting to be used with keyboards and stuff. And they had um, some Atari STs, which are the sort of computers that a lot of people were using um so that was a real sort of interesting um found that fascinating um and as i got a bit older um what really got me wanting to be in a band was was the sort of manchester indie band um scene that happened with like, like stone roses and the happy mondays um that really kind of was quite a pivotal moment for me. I love that. I really sort of wanted to, I sort of idolise those bands and the guitarists, especially guitarists like John Squire from the Stone Roses. Um, but also it was the, it was the crossover that was starting to happen with those bands, um, sort of dance crossover and the remixes that were happening, like the Paul Oakenfold and Andy Weatherall doing stuff with uh, Happy Mondays and, uh primal scream as well there was a lot of crossover happening which was starting to get me kind of a bit, a bit more a bit more sort of peaked my interest a little bit in that, that area but i was still basically an indie kid until i went to nottingham um to do a as jim mentioned briefly um it was it was called contemporary arts and it was uh essentially a music course um which um, they had a they they had a really great basement studio with uh, lots of interesting equipment, um, and I met some really great people on that course. Some people who had their own setups at home in their bedrooms, which uh, 
really interested in. Never seen sampling before, and I was starting to experiment with that. But it was it was when um, Nottingham in, in the early nineties had a, a really um, great house scene. Um, and I was starting to go out to clubs and stuff. Um, so people uh, like the DIY collective, which you heard, they're putting on lots of parties. I was um, there regular night in Nottingham, bounced. And I was going to these nights and starting to enjoy that music, but also a good friend of mine, Nathan, um, was he, was, he was my flatmate. And um, he had a really good record collection of um, house and other stuff and sort of disco and stuff. And he would be like sort of back home. He'd be saying, oh, you know that tune that you, you, know, that you heard last night in the club or you really like that? This is, and then he'd be sort of saying, this is the original sample. This is, what, this is where it came from. And that joining the dots between where, you know, the origins of house music to disco was fascinating and just that um, um, it was it was a real sort of wow moment, you know, because I had a sample and it was just like, oh, wow. So this is, you can actually, you know, go sort of loop, um, rooting around old records and find these things and get them in the sampler. Um, and it was... Yeah, we used to start, you know, we started going to car boot sales and like Jim was saying, um, we we kind of met on my final year, I think, and um, I was just starting to experiment and um, knocking up ideas. I n- I'd never really, it was just messing about in, be- in the bedroom, but Jim had been a bit more... I think it kind of a little bit more advanced in that you'd, you'd actually had some music out and had some some good connections as well, sort of the connections with record labels as well. So um, that really kind of put a little bit of focus into what I was doing. Um, and yeah, that's kind of that takes us up to the Crazy P era. And you know, it's funny. Um... I don't think a lot of us could have been able to pull off building these type of, let's call it garage bands or production suites without being able to bring that gear home. It got to a point before we were all going into this production stuff, to hire those, those big studios and have all these musicians come, unless you had loads of money, it wasn't happening. The drum machine and sampler made it to a point where you can all go together in someone's uh, basement or their bedroom and and chuck out a song like that. Free to that, that wasn't possible. Mm. You know? The yeah. T- yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. I think that was the, it was a way of getting those kind of, that, that, that production sound into your music, you know, sample up a, an old a disco break and, there you go. You've got a, a, an authentic sounding drum track, just like that. So how many songs would you say in the beginning stages when you guys started to work together did it take to get to that first track where you said, right, this is it. Now we know Crazy P is going to be on its way now. Or 
I'm going to be able to hand this out to some DJs to play. What was the lab time for all of you? I think we felt, it, we, I just think, I think we felt pretty good about what we were doing from the beginning. Mm. My recollection is it could have even been the first few tracks we did that got signed to paper. Is that, is that how you remember it? I think so, yeah. I mean, I mean, the memory is, 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 is fairly sketchy, but I seem to remember things happening quite quick. And I just remember, I remember sort of, I remember Nathan pulling out samples for us as well. That was quite sort of, um, that was, this is my friend that was mentioned before. And I, I seem to remember the, the first few things that we just got in the sampler. Yeah, I think we did, actually we did, we did one collaboration before Crazy Penis, which was the one on Music of Vitae. Yeah. Um, and then, my, yeah, yeah, I think we just basically made two tunes, which ended up being our first 12-inch on paper. The same friend I mentioned who um, took me to Cream, a guy called Phil Cooper, um, he was he was DJing at Cream by this point. He had his own record shop, and he was pretty well connected. And um, yeah, I remember that tracks to Phil. Phil Cooper, Fat Phil, or just yeah, Fat Phil. So I went to school with Phil. Um, so Phil sent the tunes up to paper. Really, and it was a very quick turnaround. It's like, you know, it's only a couple of days. He had this, he, he said, oh, come around my house. I've got something to play. So I came around and Elliot Eastwick from the label had left this answer phone message. He was like, Phil, these two tracks, we definitely want them. He said, but is it right they're from Wales? Because if they're from Wales, I'm not interested. He was joking, obviously. It's like, you know, obviously. He's, so he knew Phil was from Wales. It was a, it was a bit of a dig. It was a, a bit of a cheap dig at Phil, but um, and that was it. We were that was it. We were up to Manchester then for a bit of a meeting, and um, but even at that stage, I think it's fair to say it was we were in Hobbyland, really. It yeah, was like, it was. We, we, we had no great vision for become, you know, for taking over the world. It was like we just really enjoyed the process. I think what we thought we, we were doing, we were really happy with. We thought it was fresh sounding. Um, and we just kept on going. And it's like, yeah, I don't think there's any point where we've said, yeah, where we where we felt like, oh, right, yeah, it's a proper job now. <laughs> it's like uh, we just sort of kept going. Mm. And, uh, and, then, and, and then gradually... Um, as we made the records and we got, you know, we, you know, we, after that first 12 inch, I think, I think we did another 12 and then we made an album and um, it was just quite organic, you might say, but um, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, there was no big picture. There was no um, massive vision. It was just really for us about the buzz we got from making the music. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the question, you know, it's like, once again, What's that first record that the phones are ringing to you guys? Like, yo, I want you for this. Yo, I need you. Because, know, you know, there's always that first, that one record where you go, whoa, went from hobby to now legit. Where is that translating record? Which one? I'd say it's the first album, probably. 
yeah, or even the first single on paper. But yeah, the album was... Oh, was, was, was that Summer Bummer, the first, yeah. first single? Because mm. I remember that, and I wasn't anything to do with you then, but I thought that was awesome. And I mean, I think they put out, they'd already put out issue one, Downtime, as their first record, then the, the, the book, and then Eric Rugg, um, Don't Fuck With My Shit, uh, was the third record. And Don't then, fuck with my shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was called Dirty that's Jesus. Like, that's what I like about this group. Clean cut, coming with their toys, clean, ready. Don't fuck with my shit. Yeah, well, that was Eric. You have to blame Eric for that one. That wasn't for us, but um, it was... And I think we were the fourth release. Yeah, um, something like that. Or, or, so yeah. the records that come before were super... To I mean, before we got signed, were, were super cool. I mean, Phil used to get the promos and they just used to arrive in a brown paper bag, no writing, so you knew it was from paper. It was like, you know, and he, he, used, to, he used to get them at home, we used to go around and listen to them, and it was just like, this is where it's at. This is totally where it's at. So I think, yeah, getting signed to them was a real, it was a boost. Here's the thing about yesteryear to posing today. People, check this out. Back in the day, you got very little information, more white labels, something scripted, maybe a, an, an ID number of the pressing or code. Records would blow up from that. Nobody knew what was what. Nobody was knew how it went. They knew this was a hot track. Meanwhile, coming forward in the time machine, you have to explain everything. You have to describe everything. You have to be as it's more about the texting and the hashtagging than it is about the actual sometimes the product. And back in the day, you listened more so than who you could care less, basically who did it. It was more about the sound. Then if it happened that it was your favorite DJ or producer, even better. But you didn't judge it on that. You judged it on the quality of what you heard. And that's how the fire would, would, would travel. Or should I say the explosion would begin? Because now it's so, so different. But we'll, we'll, we'll touch about that in a moment. You know? I think there was always a guaranteed quality with labels like Paper and New Phonic as well. So, you know, you kind of, you could buy almost slightly blindly and just expect good quality. There was a very definite sound to those two labels. For me, for me, there was anyway. They put a stamp on the UK sound because yeah. up until then, we were listening to predominantly American mm. music in terms of house music. Um, and um, there was oh, there was more progressive sound here, but that didn't really we weren't really into that. So if you wanted something soulful, mm. um, uh, then they were the labels to to go to, and they and I think they kicked off a lot of like you know Ralph Lawson at twenty twenty another one. Um, it started a flux of of UK labels which were high quality, um, high integrity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, great artwork, uh, and the, the records were fresh, totally fresh sounding. That's the thing, though. There was no rules. You did what you felt. 
you interpreted, you heard something out. And that was, I'm going to speak from me as a producer. A lot of us were doing that. Of course, you would go see somebody you love playing music and a record would resonate. Of course, you wanted to make your records do the same. So you go back to the lab, you listen to what everybody else is going on around you. Inclusive me getting those paper promos. We were checking everything as DJs and record producers. And I know everybody else was doing the same. It's just par of the machine that we were all in. You know, we want to make better music, you know, or we wanted to push the envelope. And your sound was doing that because it was standing out. And that was a super cool thing why you guys became famous in the house music scene. Because it, it was different. It was your interpretation. Like, for example, you said, oh, I went to go hear Tony Humphreys. And he played, and he's known in those days for playing gospel house music. I know because I was very close with him. And we would do a lot of gigs together. And I was hanging out with all those guys. And you couldn't help to hear those type of records coming from that so-called Jersey sound. You carry Chandler's, all them producing music that he is playing to all of us. And of course, it is somewhat inspiring us to make records to go that way because you saw everybody loved it. So you're thinking, how can I implement that into what I do? It's inevitable, you know? Yeah. So on that one, you know, of course, you just try to push it further or interpret it your way. Because there were certain guys... Like Roger Sanchez, they were doing what they were doing. He was doing what he was doing, you know, uh, sampling stuff up and and doing, and then also remixing a lot of those big vocal tracks with a bit of a gospel edge, but with the pushing drums. So there was so much going on at the same time. All this, what originally started from Chicago, now England takes it and it blows up on an international level. Because from the American side, we had moments where it popped out commercially around Crystal Waters era, Gypsy Woman, and then went back on the ground. But the UK, you guys, you, all of you, made it into a lifestyle. The music, the club scene, it just kept going. And then now, as to why you all can go up on a stage and have thousands of people at the festival roar to you and your sounds. And they know your music and may never have hit radio, some of those records. But yet, it's kind of like a pop group in a way, you guys. Crazy P. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's not like you're like the Britney Spears. But I can hear with that. I, I would love it too. But here's the thing. I'm happy with pop group. I'm feeling a lot worse than that. But... No, what I'm saying is, in a sense, Britney Spears and those types of groups where, you know, they're in the constant eyes of the public and all kinds of stuff. The, the people that follow you know everything about what you're doing. They know your music. They know what your releases. They know what you're playing. They know it's great. I think it's a wonderful thing to have that niche on that level. We're very lucky. Thank you. You're welcome. I mean, you know, you also, let's put it like this, you also envy too. You know, at the same time, and which is a good thing. It's a good thing to be envy. That means you're making success. So after paper and all, take us on the journey. What happens in your lives as this crazy penis is now becoming crazy pee? 
what's the plan that this is becoming serious now since you're becoming a business? Well, from my perspective, should I start? Well, I think, I think what, what was in, an instrumental turning point personally was um, we did, we were very popular in Australia and um, so we used to get to play big bigger venues over there, which from the kind of venue we were playing in the UK, it was a big step up. And um, what was that? What was the name of that place that we played in Sydney? Uh, the, the Metro, and uh, you know, the, an old kind of like I don't know Victorian esque hall. It was it was amazing. It was sold out, and for us, those experiences really were new to us. But then I think it was two thousand and four. We went on a, a festival tour with Nitin Sony and Maloko. And it was Maloko's last tour together. And um, the kind of the, the arenas that we got to play, the festival um, venues that we got to play were just absolutely magnificent. And, and for us, I think that was a big learning curve of how to perform to an audience and engage and actually learn your kind of stagecraft. I think, it, I think it was a real big kind of step for us. And then as a consequence of that, we actually got to tour support. We asked to tour support with Faithless, uh, and that was the UK um, kind of arena tour. And and again, that was a big turning point for us. Um, so that was two, that would have been two thousand and five, two thousand and six, and 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 that was a game changer in my opinion. What 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 do you think, guys? What what was your? I think as far as the live thing goes, that's spot on. I think mm -hmm. records-wise, I think the we, we our taste deviated. We we started experimenting with different tempos. We started really trying to push the production values as much as we could, which meant live strings, live brass. Um, it 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 became it became a band. It became like uh, you know the live thing was the main was the main thing. We kind of went from making 12-inch club tracks to making albums and making like a body of work um, each time. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think as soon as we started getting a performing with, with band, the band, even before we had Matt the drummer on board, I think, Having, um, I think, I think the the early days of of, of had we, we had a couple of gigs where we it was just me and you, Jim, with with the basically the studio set up. We'd take the studio set up to these gigs and um, didn't last long. That didn't last long. We did about two gigs, and then maybe a couple, a couple of gigs where we basically we had a a mini disc player with a backing track, and we were triggering samples, and it was just like. No, we can't be doing this. <laughs> We've got to, um, and it was at the same time that we'd just done the, the first single. Yell, so it, it seemed like the right time to kind of step it up and get a a, a more of a a proper lineup, proper a, a proper show together. And ever since then, and certainly since we got Matt involved, our drummer, who um, 
there's a there's a there's a friend that I, that was I met at college, but we all we all kind of hung out um, in Nottingham. Um, and yeah, it's um, it the, the the live show started to kind of feed back into the studio work and vice versa. So it kind of really informed where we wanted to go with future album projects. Um, and yeah, there was, a, there was, like Jim said, there was a lot of, exper- you know, just trying out, experimenting with different styles. And I think we, we, we spent a, a fair, a, you know, a few years finding our feet, really. Um, we had some fun, we, we wrote some good tunes, but it took us a while, I think, probably till we got to when we on um, to kind of really feel comfortable in what we were doing. I think prior to that, we were trying different things. We we also had a period of where we were trying to write kind of quite radio friendly um, music and do and do sort of, you know, make the, the, the single, you know, three and a half minute single and, have the, have the chorus come in at 30 seconds and all these restrictions that were quite frustrating, really. And I think once we'd... Um... That's a point I want to ask you about. Who was pushing that, Toddy, that let's do that radio mentality, let's go for commercial records, where you were starting? We had, we had a label. We had label interest uh, in a major way. And um, with major sort of money, and but it, I mean, it soon became apparent, really, that they just wanted a total carbon copy of our last album. Um, and we spent a few months. I think this is the this is the moment that Tony is talking about. Really, it's, it's a very pivotal, where you know, as a musician, you're you're struggling to make ends meet. Um, it, it's tough out there. Then you get this interest, and this interest means that, well, there's money involved. And then you start thinking, oh, Christ, well, this will, this will pay my rent all year. And then you start going down this road. Fortunately for us, wasn't we didn't go down it for a very, very long time. But, and, and I can't remember exactly how we pulled ourselves out of it, but we, we, we saw, we, we just saw through it. And I think we, we, we thought, you know what, this is not what it's about. It's not what we're about. Let's just try and make the music that we want to make. Uh, and if it doesn't fit into three and a half minutes and it isn't of a sunshine, happy vibe variety, then so be it. If we like it, um, let's go with it. And I think that was, like Chris said, the, when we on, which would have been, what, 2006 or 2007? I think it's a bit later than that, wasn't it? I think it was, it might have even been 2010. Was it? Bloody hell, yeah, sure. yeah. We... But, I mean, that was, we're, we're, as soon as we started making that record with that freedom, um, mm. it was, it, it totally opened everything up. And... I, and it was there you go. I mean, that after that record was when we started really achieving, you know, um, the success in terms of where we are now, where it's you know, we're, we're all happy to do it as a full time job, yeah. Um, so it was at that point, it could have been easily. I mean, the label yeah. that offered us the money are now gone, <laughs> you know, which shows you. 
Um, Can you share that with me? It was head candy. Oh, through the Ministry of Sound people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that shows you. I, yeah, I think. So can you imagine that conversation, everyone? Conversation is more like this. We need some of that hot, sexy music for head candy. Yeah. Because that's what they were about. They were. Oh, in people weren't feeling very hot and sexy, Lenny, at that point. <laughs> <laughs> we need that sexy music. You know, that, you know, because that's how I remember that brand was breaking out with all those the parties around the world, especially in, in Europe and the UK and Ibiza. Head Candy ruled the roost for a minute there for a while. So I could imagine them throwing Ministry of Sound money at you and you're going, it's quite, look, when you don't have, and now all of a sudden you have all this thrown at you, it's hard to say no. Because you want to run it as a business. You want to be able to enjoy, to keep making music, not struggle to make music. It's different. You know, it's hard when you're struggling. And and then when you get a taste of that moment of the of the golden, you know, I always say it's that golden lollipops. Like, oh, it tastes so damn good. It's like, no, no, take it away. I want to keep it. You know, it's like, but when you play on that level, there's a give and take. You know, it's like, how far do we want to go to change? And how far are we willing not to change? You know, fine lines. I give you a lot of credit, guys and lady, that you would have a situation where that threshold line is drawn in your sand and you're asked to bring us what you did for paper, but you, but, but we wanted this one. You know, they, they always give you those that's super cool, but can you do this? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And are you willing? Like you say, I think I think once you go down that, that route, and it is very, very tempting, but you very much definitely kind of, you have to ha adhere to a, form, a formula. And um, the more you kind of think about that, and another another group that we know, they'd actually signed to a major label, and it didn't work out. Um, and and so with reference to that, I think I think thinking about things once we kind of sat back from it, it was a it was a definite no from us. Yeah, they had like a five album deal or something, didn't they? And yeah. by album five, by album five, the record label had totally lost interest in them. Yeah. So you know they just you know they just didn't care, and they were just it was really disappointing to see such talented individuals uh face this sort of i mean they still made the records great to be fair to them didn't they but um mm. it was just um it, you're right danny that was at the same time so that yeah. probably colored our colored our uh, judgment as well guys but do you actually think that sometimes when people that brought you in the a and r person that had the vision and the fantasy of making this Crazy P become like a commercial act is no longer there or loses interest. How important is that to the yeah. end? You know? Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. It's um it's a dangerous game. Yeah. Again, we know people, I mean, who've had recorded albums like with the Philly Soul Strings 
and everything. And then and then the, the, the boss has changed hands and it's been ditched. And in fact, it's never even seen the light of day. You know, they spent 200,000 quid on the record. And it's like, it's on a shelf. Mm. And it's still on a shelf. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But the independent route was a good one for us. And yeah. I think it's increased our longevity and it's kept our fan base really loyal. And um, yeah, best move we could have made. In the beginning, did you think about any social media stuff at that time, or was it just making music? <laughs> I don't think about it now, Lenny, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was one thing we were never particularly good at, I think, which was. Um, Kind of creating a personality for yourself. We're not. We're not kind of. Um, whilst I like sometimes ranting on Facebook or posting things on Facebook, or whatever. I, do, I, I, I think. I think there's certain people that really engage it with a specific personality, and um, they really, they really go for it, and they're really good what at it. Narcissists. Who's that? Narcissists. Do we? Uh, well, that's one word. But yeah. you know, we were, for example, we were we were kind of with this um, management company for quite a short amount of time, relatively, and they were always kind of trying to, uh, you know, kind of provoke or, or, or prompt us into kind of developing a personality, and I think we were just quite happy being ourselves, and that didn't ever seem enough. It was always like, yeah, but what about if you forward roll into a record shop dressed as a bear, or what if you? You know, you kind of um, run down the street naked. It was like, do we have to? You know, it was like always trying to create some kind of uh, attention. And um, so social media really wasn't on our kind of uh, spectrum. That's why I asked it. Yeah. Mm. Because people nowadays are on the opposite side of the spectrum now. As you saying you're not bothered by any of them from others it's not about the quality of what they're doing in the studio it's about how many people they're following them and the music is just a calling card it's terrible mm -hmm. it's the nature of the game now you know it just seems like hey i got a hundred thousand followers that makes me popular yeah the music you're like oh god that's you call that music it's not music you know, I mean, it's not fair for me. I'm in here again. This is my perspective, everyone. This is not religion. It's not politics. It's not the right way or wrong way of doing anything. We choose our paths. They chose a path to saying, hey, we're going to put our energy into making fine music. And we'll see where it goes. And I give them a lot of respect for that. That's the part I give all of you respect. Because nowadays you don't hear that. You hear more about like a machine, get things done no matter what, blah, 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 blah. And let's get to the next gig and yeah, let's let's post it. Let's like you like Jim said, the narcissism part of it brings people to you, I guess, because of the social media. I guess what we see more is people venting these days than sharing the nicety parts of what we do. You know, I find more that's what I've been seeing. And that's why I never liked it when it started because 
when we all went out to these clubs and these environments, that kind of stuff was left outside. We were there together as one, enjoying it, not bringing all that stuff into it. But now due to this thing called the smartphone, which comes with a camera, we weren't allowed to take pictures back then of any of that stuff. When you were out, you were out stood there. Nobody cared to remember how you looked <laughs> that night. Now, everyone has to look always their best. You have to be on your best behavior because everybody's flashing. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. I don't think you ever, you know, it's, um, you just have to adapt and, you know, just keep doing, you know, I mean, it's it sounds a bit naff, but, you know, just keep, my my personal mantra is if if you if you make if you're happy with the music, the rest will travel. You know it will travel. You, you, you know you you will you will make an impression somehow somewhere along the line without having to throw yourself under the Instagram bus. <laughs> um, it's um, that I, I mean some people will probably say that's a bit naive of me, but I still really feel like. It's, it is down to the quality of the music, and it doesn't matter. I think what you're talking about with people who who treat Instagram as a more important thing, it's a different ball game. We're not in that. We we don't we don't play at those events. We don't deal with those people. We are in a different niche. We're in a different um, group. Well, that's a good point. So explain your your fan, like what your fans are like. So people can understand that who are watching is that maybe don't really know the true part of Crazy P. They know the music, but they're not really sure about the stage show or the fans that follow. I think we're very, very lucky in the sense that the baton has been very definitely kind of handed on inclusively to a really brilliant musical young audience. And I, and I mean... 20 something you know early 20s and I think it's for us that's been incredibly um humbling and um exciting because you can't rely on people our age to go out week in week out they've got they've got other parts of the lives so whilst we've still got that loyal fan base we've also got nice dog we've also got um this really young, youthful audience that are absolutely loving it. And that's what keeps us feeling young. Weirdly, I know what we were talking about before, which was, you know, obviously we're, 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 we're experienced, but seeing, seeing youngsters in the audience is everything. So our, our fan base is really broad and uh, music lovers, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's fascinating. That's important. Educated music officiados, I find with a lot of the people that come to all of our gigs, they know their music, they know all about us. Sometimes they know too much. You're like, how'd you find that out? Wow. <laughs> you know? Can you give us an example? <laughs> 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 It's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll let you escape. 
But now, now, with the last album, this remix album, which I'm, I know is a, is a success, and you know we understand how you did things back in the day. When you guys sit down now, is it always the idea to produce a album, or are you going from song to song, and then just compiling them when you're trying to make this these new albums? There's a bit of um, there's a bit of both going on. I think I think um, probably as we've matured <laughs> as writers. I mean, the last few albums certainly have had a bit more kind of cohesive glue about them. In that that they were kind of there was a period of time when we tried to knuckle down and write the majority of them. But there was always tracks. There's always sort of tracks kind of in the vaults that sometimes make make it a bit of an appearance maybe maybe there was, there was something left over from a previous album but I think the last the last certainly the last album um was written the majority of it was written during a, a, a two weeks um in February very cold February in um north in Anglesey which is on the west coast of, of Wales and we got the full band in for two weeks, set up a, a studio in this beautiful wooden barn. Um, and um, yeah, just 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 wrote for, for two weeks. And that that's basically informed the majority of the of, of that album. And then there was, yeah, there was a lot of, there was there was post-production where we, we came up with fresh ideas but essentially the, the the starting point was pretty much the two weeks writing um and we did a similar thing for the, the one we're working on at the moment so we we we, we spent um, a couple of weeks in a in a place early this year to come up with some ideas so yeah um i think just by virtue of those um putting something like that in place so right we're going to go here we're going to write some music it kind of very much gives it gives them some strong identity rather than it being sort of a you know a, a, a studio sessions you know um sort of isolated studio sessions that you're trying to tie together so you all believe the best way is to have all of you together for a time period, to um, I, I, I think it's 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 certainly it's worked well for the last couple of albums. Um, other other times we've had um, like the, the album we mentioned when we on was very much just the three of us. Um, we decided to do it that way, and we 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 kind of it it, it definitely the psychology of it and the. The vibe of it was the, the three of us in a room writing stuff together. Um, but um, yeah, but certainly the last two, we've 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 got the the rest of the guys involved for a little bit. Um, I think it's it's great for for vibe, you know, for, for for playing in the room with with the guys. We've got a good, you know, it's the same lineup we've had for for you know twenty years pretty much. So we've got. Um, how many of the of these guys are there to make these records happen? 
Well, there's two two extra uh, people who have been fairly consistent. Well, I've always been there, and that's Tim, who was mentioned before, bass player, and Matt, the drummer. But we do it in different formats, you know. Mm. It's like the two-week period where we're together is like the band writing, and then, like Chris sort of touched on before, we'll have other ideas, other concepts that are brought in after that period maybe worked up with just the three of us, maybe worked up by one of us and then presented to the others. It, it could be any number of ways, but what, like Chris said, what the, 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 the two-week period does with all of you is give you a vibe. Yeah. Give you a great feeling. It's like you, you, you're in it. You, you've, you've got nothing that you have to worry about for that two weeks. It's just get your head in it. Um, and we found those sessions to be really productive. And, yeah, it's the start of the journey. Mm. We, we do a lot in those two weeks, but really it just kicks you off, you know, for the rest of the project. Um, I've really enjoyed those periods. They're really, they're fun. Mm. Mm. Some nice food and drink had as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> To hang out, nice to hang out because we're friends as well. You know, it's nice to kind of just, just, just be together rather than kind of right. We're going to a studio, forced together. It's it's nice to hang out and then, you know, right. I mean, that is the beauty of it. Yeah, I mean, you can have dinner, put the telly on, and then at half ten at night, everybody's in the mood, had a wine or two. Hey, do you fancy? You know, should we get in there? Yeah, let's do it. You know, there's no clock ticking like Danny says. It's a good yeah. way to do it. Do you guys also do all the engineering and stuff, or you have somebody who's handling that on that end when you when you're starting to do tracking and all that when you're all together? We do. Yeah, we do. We 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 do it all all ourselves pretty much. Um, occasionally, we've had when we brought someone in to do some drum tracking. We've we, we've done that a couple of times, but up until this point, it's all been in house. Um, when, we, when we record stuff live between the band, we get a friend of ours, Rick mm. Pete, who used to do front of house for the band and now is the tour manager. You know, when, when we're recording the band, it's quite important to have somebody else there, just so you're not worried about plugging things in and you're not you're not worried about the setup. You could just worry about playing. So, for those occasions, we have got Rick in just to uh, just to take that that pressure off us. See that exactly, so that you can be, be musicians and write, and not have to think about the technical end. That's that sometimes that will stunt, or should I say, slow things down? Because now you're in a vibe. Oh wait a minute, hold on, we got a problem. It's not. This is oh, worse. Yeah. Oh, you didn't get that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Who remembers what? Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, and the good thing about Rick as well is he's like he takes you by surprise. So I remember the last session we had, we did a take of one. It was like, oh god, I wish we'd have had record on there. And Rick just came through. So yeah, I, had those, I recorded that. You know, mm -hmm. I got it. Yeah, it all. We didn't even think he was set up, but he was good to go. So that take where the pressure was off, we didn't think the red button was on. It was um, it was captured. So and it's really set, right? When you listen back, you go, man, that's not the best groove, right? And, and a lot of times when you do yeah, it, it's it's the rough side, you're doing the rough runs, 
they listen back. You go, women, that's better than us when we're trying to contrive it properly. <laughs> yeah, well, when the red light goes on, anything so, could go wrong. Yeah. Everybody yeah. stiffens up. It's like everybody stiff. It's like take the red light off. And it, we used to do that back in the day, not say anything and just go bang. You got that? We roll it back. Listen. Oh my God. And then <laughs> actually do it for real, for real. But keep that pass and like, no, we'll take that pass better. The one yeah. Mm -hmm. three. Yeah. That's happened several times. Yeah. 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 The best gig you guys ever played together. Oh. Come on. Well, it's gonna be a few contenders. You're telling me Wembley? They're all classics. <laughs> They're all classics. What can I say? It's tough to pick. Um Gosh, that's. I mean, it's. I, yeah. I, I, I would put in the hat the um, the last one we did at the Sugar Club in Dublin. I think. Yeah. Uh, that was ridiculous. Uh, because it's a really small jazz club, but we've played it consistently over the tours, and the stage is really, really low. Um, and so it's you're really the crowd, you're in the crowd. And uh, that, I think energy wise, the one we did on the Age of the Ego tour there, yeah, I was, I mean, I was, you know, I was weathered up a bit. It was really quite mm. mad fun. I thought and I was God. What's that? I thought I was God. What's the change? It was immense. It was like the, 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 the amount of like energy in that, in that room. It was ridiculous. It was like a human zoo. Like it was. It was incredible. Just came off shaking. Yeah. And, uh, uh, very emotional. And you know, it was a very. It was a, one of the smaller gigs on that tour. But mm. you know, it was just a perfect storm, perfect vibe in there. Yeah, it was great. I, I'd probably say yeah. that. I don't know. Can you think of any others? I think there's Plus been a. Moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, at the one I was. was I mean, it's, you have to throw a few into the hat, really, but the, the, the one we did at Coco. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which was obviously, it's a, you know, it's a big, it's a, it's a big stage for us, and it's got, it's an amazing venue, Coco in Camden. And, um, we, yeah, it was, like, it was for the um, When We On album as well, and we had some, some great, set design as well the big p that was lit up which um, was it will who did that the, it was will who did that. yeah the ld the lighting director we had some really good lights it was just for, for, for production value it was stepped up a notch on that on that show and we really put a lot of effort into it and although we might have been a bit nervy on stage i think the the feedback and the way it went down and we did enjoy it it was great um it was just a real whoa did we just do that did we just play there it was i think it was more or less sold out it's a beautiful old victorian style music hall kind of venue um and that was special i always remember that one as i asked the greatest gig you know i gotta ask the next one <laughs> worst let's go right down that crap hole <laughs> The rabbit hole of the worst. <laughs> what could have been the worst gig you said? Oh my god, this is so bad. <laughs> we did one. We did one where we. Yeah, we did one where we played um, 
we played a venue in a certain country where uh, we got stopped after 40 minutes so that they could uh, bring on the dancing girls and uh, kind of do some kind of raffle. But no one was allowed to dance in the audience. So it all felt a little bit, I think it was a Playboy, sponsored by Playboy or something like that. And it was quite a, quite an experience. Uh, I, th I think I think I think we got stuck into the vodka afterwards. It was it was it was it was quite quite bad. Unusual. It unusual. Was quite unusual. It was quite unusual. That was, in, that was in Russia, wasn't it? I think we had a few of those in Russia. Quite oh, strange. Yeah, I mean, Russia, Russia, Russia were like that, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> They've always been a little bit edgy. And a we've big had weird. Some we've had some no, we have had some good ones. But, but, ones but I think in, in the kind of earlier days, you know, there was there was like a lot a lot of the gigs in Russia were sponsored events. So mm. they were either sponsored by a huge vodka company or or, or, or Playboy or you know, so it, it wasn't really like our audience. It was a an audience where you get a lot of wealthy businessmen and then lots of kind of younger girls who were very beautiful and music really wasn't the main focus so we'd turn up and you were lucky if anyone was really watching watching you which can be quite disarming in a bad way mm. makes you leave there and go oh i don't want to do that again but then you're saying damn they paid a lot of money for us to come over to perform i remember yeah, it was not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being in the car, leaving the gig in St. Petersburg, and every few blocks we were getting stopped from the police. I'm going, why? The guy turns to me and says, you know why? Because cop don't need good money. needs protection money from us. Oh. They're constantly on the take in Russia. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Mm. Of course. Now, the question is... Who is your record label today? And how do you go about doing future projects from this point forward? Are you controlling your own AR or somebody consulting you as well? Like you see back in the day when we went and worked with labels. Who wants this one? Anyone in Go for it. K7. I mean, we basically have an artist services deal with K7, who are a major, are they a major label? I guess they are. I suppose but so. what the artist services deal is gives you is complete freedom um, to use their resources, uh, but to basically um, just do what you want. <laughs> so that's what we've been with, that's what we've done for the last two or three albums. Yeah. Um, so we created our own label, which is called Walk Don't Walk, and then we we use K7 Distribution and um, and their elements of their resources they can give to us, and um, and it's our thing basically. So everything from the artwork, yeah, we're, they leave us alone. I mean, fortunately, we've I think we've proved they they're, they're happy to leave us alone now um, in, in in those terms. Um, they they don't get involved at all, but you know, it, it, in a very minor way, maybe with you know release dates and whatnot. But we're left to our own devices, basically. Are you guys also pressing vinyl, or are you just doing all the digital stuff? Both. 
Yeah, we do both. As well. How well do you find the vinyl market these days with everything, with the changes and everything going on? Um, I think it's it's quite vibrant here, generally speaking. Are you talking about in the sales or are you talking about production? No, in the sales part of it, as because you're running, even though you're going to an artist service deal, you're still a record label now, independent do a major distribution. So you kind of have to be smart about how you're doing what you're doing. So are you finding it worthwhile to, to press up that a lot, that a large amount of vinyls or are you doing niche level work? Niche, niche. It, well, we do, I think we get advice on how many to press at any given time. It's, um, yeah, it's like a small press, I'd say. And then, and, then repress, and then repress when you're ready to mm. go. Generally, the way so again, that's kind of pretty much left to the the label's discretion as well, and it's you know it's their manufacturing and distribution that which we which you know which we farm out to them in a way. It's sort of, um, but yeah, as Jim said before, I think the, the vinyl market is pretty vibrant in England. So we do yeah. sell we. we the problem with that most people have is, is is actual getting things pressed up um, from a mapping point of view because because the because the, the market's really vibrant um, it's a lot of the pressing plants being taken up by the major major labels so it, it's hard crazy again that we're back to that again dealing with you start with the small pressing plants and they get bought out you know, like you can't yeah. find a place to get the stuff quick enough anymore they're all true that's definitely true just gonna yeah it's just it, that is part of the process at the moment everybody's mm -hmm. got to live unless more pressing plants magically appear then well that's um, so these major labels should have their own pressing plants <laughs> and uh leave leave these small they places used to, they used to have maybe they were stung when vinyl kind of like took a tumble maybe they were you know, distribution of vinyl and pressing plants went under, didn't they? A lot of them. Yeah. People, people went to the Yeah, there was. There was a period like that. Big time. Especially when the distributors like 3MV and Sony and all them wind up closing. Pinnacle closed all their doors when the vinyl thing died. At that time, of course, it revolutionized the streaming and all that. Everybody knows the inside, you know timeline and now cycle wise we're kind of back to vinyl again with a different type of where no more hmv stores no more tower all that's gone so you kind of put these records into certain shops and certain places so you have to be very smart how you move it you don't want to make twenty thousand pieces of vinyl and you're sitting with 15,000 units. You know, it's it's not cheap now comparing to how it was back in the day. That's why you have to be careful as to why I said before, when you're making the records, even though you're vibing, you're still kind of thinking about the commercial viability because you're running a label, even though you're not a label. It's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. The balancing, it's like a juggling constantly you're juggling you know constantly juggling mm. 
<laughs> I'm, the, I'm the clown juggler. I'm the court jester of all. You know, I'm a juggler, actually. I, I've learned you have to to be good at this game. You have to kind of understand a bit of it. You don't have to be great at all of it. You kind of have to understand a bit of it to be able to put it together if you want to be successful and not play as a hobby. So um, one of my wrap-up questions would be this. Now that we know that sorry, of Crazy P, where's Crazy P taking this show to? You know, where's the next thinking? What's what's going to be the things that we're going to be seeing maybe coming down the pipeline? I think I mean I mean well we you know we 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 we're we're gigging we're gigging as much as we've ever done and I think but I think collectively you know it'd be really nice to to be able to write more music, which is our intention imminently to 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 get to get the next album done and and do it well. And um personally, um I'd love Crazy P to write more. Um but because because by nature of how Crazy P have of of kind of never never kind of broke into that kind of the, the next the next kind of level if you like gigging has always been really important to us financially and so it'd be nice if 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 that could strike more of a balance I think personally if we could get more writing and gig because as we all mature it'd be nice to be able to write more and I think that would be a good direction for crazy P what do you guys think Jim uh, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, it's, it, you get lost in the, in the, in the, in the summer season. The thing is, we had a really good um, writing start to the year. Uh, and all the foundations are there. It's just getting quality time. It's just so difficult when you've got two or three days to play with in the week. Um, and I think that's what we suffered from. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm always, uh, you know, it's yeah. I think we're, we've got a period from uh, when we get back from the states up until Christmas where we, we we will just be in the studio. So I mean, it's just about making that time, really. But yeah, I mean, I love writing. You good at it? Hey, damn right. Keep writing. Keep writing. Don't stop. I'm I'm just surprised that when you guys are on the road, you're not jamming like writing stuff like a lot of bands would do, you know, on the sidelines. Like, hey, you know, I have this idea. What do you think? You know, I know you like to take it into a place and focus, like a focus group, which is really cool. It's kind of like the old fashioned way with Rolling Stones, Beatles would do it. You know, they would camp out. Place well, you, know, you can mention us in the same breath as them, Lenny. It's fine. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, the holy triptych: the yeah, Stones, yeah. the Beatles, Crazy P. There you are. <laughs> yeah, you know, what I'm saying it's like you wonder how Crazy P's down up there is the greatest bands of all time. But yeah, I wonder that as well, actually. <laughs> it's said before. Mm -hmm. No, I know. 
for the American tour, where are we going to be seeing you? What cities? So it's um, Austin, Austin. And then uh, LA, and then um, San Diego. Phoenix. Um, New York. New York, San Francisco, Chicago. Chicago. Where can they check all the, your tour dates so that everybody knows to lock in? If you go on our Facebook page um, or Instagram. Or Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Any Chicago dates? Did you say Chicago or no? Yep. All right now. Did I leave, did I leave anything out? I think I covered all the bases of Crazy P. I think we know where you guys are going. I'm going to keep on the same excellent formula that has made you a household name with our house heads that love you guys. Congratulations to all the years you've put in. And I'm glad to call you friends because we actually had time to eat together when I was over in Nottingham. It was wonderful. Even though I didn't get to see Danny, I am a big fan of Danny's. I love her voice. I told her that before months ago. She's got a fantastic, memorable sound. And this whole group make, to me, guys, you make what I call today's disco sound. What disco would really be. You know, that's, that's how I hear it. It's not to me to call it house music because there's a lot of live instrumentation going on. It's got a bit of a more of a disco edge. So good on you. Don't change the formula. Stay with it. And congrats. And we'll be looking forward to the... When is this next album you think will be dropping? Autumn 2023. Autumn 2023? Yeah. Yeah. Heard that from them. Crazy Peace says autumn 2023. Yeah. Wow, about nine months, almost a year. Okay. Well, we're going to wish you the best in the studio and keep letting us know. And of course, get me the records because I keep rocking them. Thanks, Thanks Lenny. Thanks so much, Lenny. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our story with OVP. We're taking this on the road, and crazy people will be at a city near you. Ta-ta. Good night, everyone. Don't leave me crazy, P. I will say to you all, Avita Zen, good to knock. And thank you. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Lenny. Cheers. <laughs>